Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journey. I'm very pleased today to be speaking to Sophie Tranchal. Sophie is Managing Director of Divine UK, the fair trade chocolate company that is 45% owned by Cocoa Farmers. Sophie is also a Social Enterprise Ambassador, Chair of Fair Trade London and a London Food Board member. She has led Divine for the past 15 years and has overseen the company's continued growth and expansion. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me today for Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs. And um, yeah, it's been very interesting to get your perspective on uh, the growth of Divine and also maybe a little bit about the current environment facing social businesses in the UK uh, today. Um, a good place to start maybe if you could tell me a little bit about you know, your background and how you uh, came, to be, uh, came to Divine. Ancient history, because obviously I've been doing divine for the last 14 years. Um, but I've always been interested in um, social justice campaigns. I was a, a big anti-apartheid campaigner, which meant I spent a lot of my youth standing outside of supermarkets, telling people what not to buy. And I think that what, uh, and obviously anti-apartheid was in the ultimately a successful campaign. So I think one of the things that interested me in taking the job in divine and the whole idea of fair trade is the idea that if you could take the energy of the boycott movement and t- turn it into positive purchasing so that people were actually going out and buying things to help make the world the way they'd like it to be, then that, w- that has, a, 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 has quite a, 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 a synergy to it. Yes, right. I guess when you, when, when you set out, the, the term social entrepreneur probably wasn't even around. Um, so what, what do you see yourself as a social entrepreneur and what do you see as the, I guess, distinct uh, uh, advantages or distinct distinct way in which it helps make the world a better place? Well, so Divine was one of the founding members of Social Enterprise London, and we were the people that coined the term in Britain of social enterprise. So yes, I do see myself as a social entrepreneur, but I suppose I more see Divine as a social enterprise. I mean, so I, I think there's, there's a certain uncomfortableness about social entrepreneur, that those two words being together, because sort of entrepreneurs, certainly back in 2000, were the sort of people who might sell their granny, in a way. And so that sense of trying to make that word a good word by attaching social to it is quite challenging, whereas I think enterprise and social fits fits together better. And so I think that there is um, an increasing amount of room for businesses that solve social problems. Um, and I think that it's actually incumbent on businesses to do that. And I think and, and I think that people have started to recognise that they would like to buy the goods and services from those sorts of businesses, and they'd like to work for those sorts of businesses. So I think there is, a, you know, you're, you're seeing an increased appetite from everybody for that sort of business. Right, right. I mean, some people have said it's become, it's a very popular term at the moment, <laughs> quite folkish, that in, in a way it might disappear in, in a number of years as large companies just see that as, you know, what they should be doing. Uh, maybe the term, you know, mightn't exist in the same way. I mean, I think it's interesting because if you actually look at, um, you know, businesses that are structured in a different way, like 
John Lewis partnership, it's quite interesting how much resilience they've had over time. Right. And so that they aren't they aren't a flash in the pan. These are people who you know. So I think they're just celebrating a birthday, aren't they? Was it 125 years? Yes. Yeah. You know. So so clearly that's a business that has been enormously successful for a very long time, and they've just paid out their bonus to their staff, which was at 15% of their annual salary. You know. So this this is a business that's doing good for consumers. It's doing good for the communities that they're in, and it's doing good for their employees. And so I think that sense of a, a different way of doing business. Actually, there's been a number of them that have lasted over over the century. And so I, 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 it, it might change how you describe it, but it doesn't mean it changes what it's doing. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the, I guess... I, I also think that the challenges that we find ourselves in in the 21st century, I think things are ch- moving faster. So that sort of sense that you are going to have to do business, you know, w- with more... Um, Absolutely. Um, Having a good story to tell, I suppose, is important. Having a story that matters to people um, for, you know, social enterprise. I mean, clearly with Divine and uh, the the way you're structured and the the relationship with the farmers and so forth. Um, But um, talking to some social uh, entrepreneurs, they, they say it's not enough. A good story is not enough that you, you know, there needs to be something fundamental uh, as well in terms of the, what it is that's different or special or, I, I guess... So my, my reaction would be, a good story is not enough, you've got to have a fantastic product and Divine's a, mad, a fantastic brand and also the products are absolutely fantastic quality cocoa, a chocolate. So I, and I think you've got to have products that people want to use and, and, and buy. Um, and then you, and then the story is a, a, a fantastic thing that you can discover possibly afterwards. It doesn't need to be the first thing you discover. So if somebody, while they're eating our bar of divine, reads the packaging and sees the story, then that might make them want to talk about it to their friends. It might make them want to buy it again. But it w- wasn't necessarily the thing that made them want to buy it in the first place. Yes, yes. I, I suppose when you're starting out and you don't have a brand and you're knocking on doors and uh, because all the big companies probably have lots of, you know, every kind of entrepreneur, not just social entrepreneur, wanting to, you know, get products distributed, build relationships. Um, I mean, how, how do you do that uh, when, when you're starting out at the beginning? I suppose with passion and persistence. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, it, you know, that's, that's not going to be different for a social enterprise than from any enterprise. Is, is you've, got to, you've got to have things that you really believe in and you've got to really, really, you know, go for it. Yeah, I talked to Tom Saki from uh, TerraCycle and he, I think, got a home depot to take his uh, poo in a bottle, worm poo in a bottle, um, and he, he he was saying that actually um, it wasn't enough that you know that that, that it was a, an interesting story or a green story, but it had to show that actually it was a more effective and more cost-effective product, um, and he did succeed in that. Um, and I'm also wondering about that the the setting ambitious goals or thinking big um, in terms of because I know at early stages you had a relationship with the co-op and so forth, and that might have seemed like a very big step in, for for a company, I guess, it's early stage of development. Um, how important is it to have uh, set big goals and think about, um, you know, uh, building partnerships with, with big companies? I think it probably does make a difference what category you're in. But if you were going to go into chocolate and you were going to make a difference, then you need to have, you needed to have big ambitions because you're playing with giants. You know, so if we weren't going to say that 
we wanted to do something significant, why would anybody be interested at all? From an investment perspective or from a going out of their way to support us perspective. So that sense that we wanted to change the way the chocolate market works forever, that, that was a big ambition. The fact that we wanted to compete with some of the biggest corporations in the world who you know, own 80% of the UK chocolate market, that's a big ambition. But they're the things that make people inspired by what we do, aren't they? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, talking about the partnerships, I mean, persistence, clearly uh, passion, very, very good. I mean, the, the relationship with Body Shop, I suppose, in the early stages, I mean, the idea of, you know, uh, it's not quite a pop-up shop, but <laughs> a, a, a visiting, uh, you know, divine selection at Body Shop, I mean, things like that, quite innovative, and certainly back, in, you know, years ago. I mean, so thinking about those kind of ideas in an innovative way, how important is that? with partners is a really good way to secure success. I think that it, as a small company, that sense of how can I increase my reach, how can I get more people to know about me, you know, how, how can I grow faster than, than I could have grown otherwise, I think that partners are a fantastic way to do that. And then, But then what I would say is you've got to part, pick your partners carefully. You've got to see that you actually have some shared values and that you have both agreed to do something where you both can get out of it what you thought you could get out of it. So I think you, you, you need to be quite particular about it. The Co-op have proved to be a fantastic partner for Divine. They, they, I mean, so we went and we did their own brand, Everyday Chocolate, back in 2001. When we were tiny, it tripled our turnover. It was a very dangerous thing to do, but they supported us through that process. Um, they saw significant growth in their chocolate. It really made a mark for Co-op in terms of doing business in a different way because they were the first people in the UK to convert a whole category to fair trade and they saw serious growth in it because it was fantastic quality chocolate. Um, and we're here today because they gave us the room to grow our brand because the volume that they delivered for us gave us the money we needed in or and the time we needed in order to grow our brand. So actually, you know, it's, it was a real success. But it could have gone wrong if we'd picked to do it with people who weren't in it for the right reasons, who weren't really committed to fair trade and changing the way business is done and had pulled out quickly, we, they would have toppled us. So if you, you know, one of the, one of the risks of doing an own brand contract is that people can pull out very fast and you can't sell that product to anybody else. And so yes. it's, 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 a, it's a high risk strategy. Co-op behaved exceedingly um, properly with us and has enabled us to become the company we are today. Right, right. And anything else in terms of the, you mentioned the shared values. I mean, obviously this takes time. You need to, you know, really listen, ask questions. Um, it's quite a, I guess, a difficult thing to do. I think you also need to get people to do what they're good at. You need to not try and get the leopard to change its spots, sort of as such. <laughs> and so that we you know we have a fantastic partnership with Comic Relief. We've delivered award-winning educational materials with them. We've, you know, they've, they've uh, introduced us to celebrities who've endorsed us and got us coverage we could have ne never got. They've done things they're good at. We haven't got them to try and do something that they couldn't do. You know, co-op is a supermarket. They've done that for us. When we've worked with the body shop, they allowed us to sell our chocolate through their shops in key periods. So from sort of, um, I would have said, Valentine's Day to Mother's Day, which was a great time to be there, which meant we had national distribution, which meant we could advertise so that people could go and try the chocolate and ask for it to be stocked elsewhere. You know, we, 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 we worked with them where they're at. You know, with Christian Aid, we got them to do a stock chock campaign where they got their campaigners to go into shops and hand in postcards saying, please stock this chocolate. That, so that sense of recognising what people are good at and getting them to do the thing they're good at, um, I think is also quite important. 
Yeah, absolutely. That sounds, uh, talking to other social entrepreneurs, it seems to be. But so many times you find similar organizations working in, in, in the same area and actually sometimes overlapping and sometimes there's scope for people to work together and maybe focus more on, on what they can do, uh, their, their core excellence, I suppose. Um, I, I, another thing that is very distinctive, clearly, is is the, the brand. I mean, it's, it's a great brand um, and it's, uh, you know, been on a journey, I suppose. Um, uh, what what insights have you had about, you know, A, the importance of a brand in it for a social enterprise, and B, uh, about building a brand? So I think if you're going to work in the chocolate category, then brands are um, really important. I mean, so people buy branded chocolate, you know, so you're buying the thing that you've always eaten, that your grandparents probably ate before you, and you want to, you want to know that when you want to fulfill that sort of indulgent treat moment, that you're going to manage to do it, and sort of brands deliver consistently what they do, and so a brand is a really good way to talk to people, it's what people recognise, and I sort of feel like probably in Britain, more than other places, we really like brands, more than other particularly European um, countries, so we've sort of fallen for brands, and so it's, yes. it's a good way to communicate to people in Britain that, you know, this brand doing something different but it also delivers fantastic quality chocolate and it will be fantastic quality every time you buy it so I think the brand has really worked and it's enabled us to have a conversation with consumers through the mediums that they use so magazines, radio, television because we're going through a branded route I think I think without doing that it's quite difficult you, you know you can't you can't sell a chocolate bar because it's doing something good you know and so yeah. that if, if it had had a long winded piece of text saying how good we were, you know, how we were doing good things with farmers, that wouldn't make people want to buy a chocolate bar in itself. Yes. You, you need a brand. Yeah, yeah. And, and any insights into, um, I, I, clearly, I mean, you talk about chocolate, but fair trade products generally. I was talking to uh, another social entrepreneur who's got uh, mangoes and he's trying to, you know, distribute them in, in, in America um, and trying to, I guess, build a brand from scratch. It's difficult with fresh fruit because if you actually think about it, when you go to the supermarket, you're not picking, you know, Chiquitas versus Fife. Yeah. You know, so, so there are there are companies yeah. operating, but you're not buying branded fruit. Yeah, it's, it's dried fruits actually. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. It's, it's sort of even in dried fruits, all those sorts of things you buy in the supermarket, which you're sort of buying at volume, they're sort of commodity purchases. So when you buy peanuts from Sainsbury's, you don't care who they're from. You're just Peanuts. Nobby's peanuts. I like nobby's. <laughs> but, but you don't, because right. you don't buy them in Sainsbury's. You'd, and and yes. actually, when you went to the pub and bought nobby's peanuts, they would be the only peanuts available. Oh, and if right. there wasn't there nobby's and you fancied a peanut, you'd buy the ones that were there. That's right. So you're not brand loyal. No. In that, in that thing. <laughs> and so you've got to actually look at where do brands operate. Yes. And then you've got to work out how to build a brand. And if I had a sort of, you know, one, you know, divine's a fantastic word to conjure with. It works in lots of languages. Mm. It works in all sorts of ways. The thing that's complicated is it's it's a descriptor. So you know, so everybody's going to say their chocolate's divine, aren't they? <laughs> sort of in a way. Yes. And so that's that's the challenge from a trademark perspective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What about funding? Um, and you've been funded along the way. Um, how challenging has it been to get funds? And what again? Any insights into? The process. I suppose we've been, I mean, I think we probably were at a very interesting time because you had a new, I mean, so part of the combination of people who came together to fund Divine at the beginning, you know, was to, uh, lots of people who shared our mission. So Body Shop um, 
joined in and really liked the idea of a farmer-owned company because they'd already been buying the cocoa butter from the farmers at a fair trade price. But they, you know, so this was taking it a step further. We had um, Twin Trading, whose whole mission is to uh, help farmers get out of poverty by accessing markets. Um, and, you know, we had Christian Aid and Comic Relief as supporters and partly investors. But we also had the support of the British government through the Department for International Development, who did a loan guarantee for us. Right. And so actually the timing was, was very good because that was a new Labour government wanting to make its mark, showing that you could do something different in international development. And so that was a loan guarantee signed off by the Ghana desk of the Department for International Development. So that was quite a, 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 an innovation. And that loan guarantee really enabled the farmers to own a significant portion of the business because it would have been the money that they would have put in. And over time, as we pay back the loan, then they've sort of earned their shareholding. Um, yeah. And so, so I do think timing's good. You know, I mean, timing's important. Um, I think there is now an increasing amount of money available for social enterprises. I think there is a growing amount of it for international social enterprises, you know, who work on, on an international agenda. And then there is definitely a growing amount for domestic social enterprises who are working on uh, local social issues. Right. Um, the two things aren't the same. I mean, so they're not the same gang of people giving out the money. Mm. Um, because uh, certainly the fair trade, the, the fair trade finance have sort of specialised in fair trade finance and microfinance for producers in developing countries. Mm-hmm. Whereas there is a, a growing pot of money available for domestic social enterprises who might be trying to support um, socially excluded uh, parts of the population. Right, right, right. There's been a lot of interest uh, recently. Some reports, I think, on impact investing and yes, and that's been yeah. much mainly. Uh, well, certainly in a British context, that been much more domestic. Yes. So that idea that you can measure that you that less people are going back to prison yes. if you join yes. in this sort of yeah. way of employing yeah. them and training them, yeah. uh, that's very measurable. And so that sense of that's an impact investment, and I can I can you know I can see that in in in, an in most of those those funds do appear to have national uh, matrix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, does, is that something you think about, think about measuring, or how, how do you see the question of impact? Well, I mean, it's quite interesting, because obviously the thing that's, I mean, so I, I remember somebody saying to me, be careful, I think it was probably, it was probably Anita Roddick, be careful what, you're, <laughs> what, what, what you measure, because yeah. that will be what you do, because yes. sort of you get dominated by it. Yes. And so obviously, in a way, where the mistake that has happened in Britain in business or in the world in business is that money is very easy to measure, and so the only thing we end up measuring and success is about money. Yes. And so I think that's the sort of the thing we've all fallen for, which is the mistake. But actually, I mean, so from a, from a divine perspective, the easiest shorthand is what money gets back to farmers that wouldn't have got back to farmers otherwise. Right. So there is a guaranteed minimum price for the cocoa. Mm-hmm. There is a fair trade premium, which is $200 a tonne of mm-hmm. cocoa that we purchase. Um, because we are a 100% fair trade company, we have decided to invest 2% of our turnover in what we call producer support and development, which is investing in sort of in a way the farmer's business and the challenges they have doing business. So mm-hmm. over, the, over the, the 14 years, we've invested that in training in farming practices, in training in cooperative principles and values. So how do you work in a big cooperative? What are the things you, uh, what are the duties you have and what are the, you know, what are your responsibilities, but also what, what's your rights in that context? Um, there's been training for women to participate more in the organisation. Um, and there's been funding for ele- elections, which are um, expensive things to run, actually, as a, as a democratic organisation. Mm-hmm. And so that money is, is, is additional to the fair trade price and premium. And then 
Um, obviously, as a company limited by shares, we are proud to distribute a profit because the farmers own 45% of the company. And so when we've distributed a profit, then they get 45% of the profit. So you can see that we're creating lots of income streams, which we mm. can absolutely measure. We then can go to Ghana and see what they've decided to spend that money on. And so that money, the money that they get as the Fed rate price and premium, they've decided, and, and even the profit distribution, they've given every farmer every, uh, for the last few years a machete, which is a tool of the trade for cutting down cocoa pods, mm -hmm. so every uh, farmer member. They've paid bonuses to every member on the basis of the volume of cocoa that they deliver. They've built schools, they've sunk water wells, they've built toilet blocks, they've done um, income generation schemes to, to help women um, access other ways of earning money. They've done um, mobile medical clinics. So we can sort of trace those things relatively easily, actually, mm -hmm. in a way that's much more transparent than probably either a bigger business or a more conventional business. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, we've just done a press release where we've said that since we started, we've turned over 100 million pounds, which means that we've invested 2 million pounds in producer support and development in addition to the fair trade price and premium. So okay. I think that's quite significant given, yes. you know, everybody behaves as if, and it's true, we are tiny compared with the people that we're operating up in the market with. Yes, well, I, I suppose it's, it's say there are many different elements that go into measuring the impact. I mean, what about the impact and changing the actual values of the chocolate industry itself? I mean, clearly, for, for, for many social enterprises, or for some social enterprises, they, they, they're paying a lot of attention to this, you know, realizing that within, you know, the, the direct impact they can have, you know, even in the best of all possible worlds, um, and, and, and to shift the needle in terms of the overall values. Uh, clearly, that has happened uh, it, it, to some degree in, in the in the chocolate industry, um, what's your view on that, and and how do you see that playing out? So I think that um, so the figures that were released this year show that 21% of all chocolate sold in Britain was so had a fair trade mark on it this year, which that is an amazing success. You know, so this is a market worth 3.9 billion pounds, and 21% of it had carried a fair trade mark, which means that a significant amount of consumers in Britain were able to buy fair trade products and benefits that accrued to farmers because of that was, was considerable. So I think that, that, that our, our ambition to change the way chocolate was traded, I, I think we've gone further down that ambition than actually I could have ever imagined. Yes. I mean, I, you know, at the point when Cadbury's converted yes. carried, uh, Cadbury's dairy milk, clearly it was a double-edged sword. That was exactly yeah. what we wanted to happen. And now, you know, our main competitor, you know, a, a huge player is, is got one of our USPs. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. so clearly it, 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 it's a double-edged sword, but it's absolutely what we wanted to see. And I can see on the ground the benefits that that's delivered to farmers. And that's what I wanted to, that's what we wanted to happen when we set out. Yeah. So, uh, so, so I, you know, I think we've done that in a big way. I think the other thing that's worth, I mean, one of my motivations is I want people, you know, in Britain to feel that they can make a difference. I think there is a sense that in this sort of very fast communication, globalised world, you see all the awful things that are happening mm. in such an unedited way. And yeah. you just keep on thinking, I can't do anything about it. It makes you feel hopeless. And therefore, it makes you complacent. Yes. Whereas I hope that Divine offers people an opportunity to to make, to, do so, to make themselves feel like they can make a difference, and therefore, hopefully, they go on making a difference in other things that they do too. Yes. So yes. I hope I hope Divine that that's that's 
one of the impacts of Divine is to empower consumers as well as producers. Yes, that's very inspiring, beyond the, the chocolate industry itself. Yes. I, I can't help but ask just about the co-op, because it's been around a long time. You talk about models, John Lewis, these yes. hundreds of years. Uh, obviously very resilient. Uh, some question marks recently about you know, the structure, governance of, of, of you know, cooperative organizations uh, in, our, in our time. Um, what, what are your thoughts on the resilience and, and, and where the co-op might be going, cooperative movement? in Britain because obviously the co-op retail group uh, um, is so enormous and so it's sort of what's, what's happening is that there's something dreadful has happened in the co-op and that's making people think it's about all co-ops Yes, but it isn't, it's one that yeah. has overstretched itself and made some unwise decisions um, which are you know, really sad and I hope that they will be able to get themselves through it but actually there is lots of thriving co-ops in Britain mm. and to all intents and purposes to an average person John Lewis is one of them yes. i.e. there are co-ops that are owned by their employees mm. which John Lewis is one mm. and then there are co-ops that are owned by consumers the co-op is one and there are, there are ones that are owned in a mixed way you know, the point yes. of a co-op is that the people who own it um, uh, all have a say in how it's run. Yes. And so that sort of sense that I feel as if there's a, I think there's an increased appetite for things that are owned in a different way. I think that cooperatives is one of the ways that happens. I think it's very difficult when an organisation gets to an enormous scale. I think, I think that's challenging. I think it's interesting how organisations like um, John Lewis have, have, have succeeded within that environment and, and the cooperative at the moment hasn't. I think there are some very specialist organisations that it's surprising that they're cooperatives. People like Scott Bader, which is a polymer company, mm. hugely successful operations in you know, lots of different countries, really thriving. That's an employee-owned business. Um, uh, no, Titchy jams, which is a lovely British business, mm. is half owned by the farmers that grow the fruit that goes in the jam. You know, we don't know half of what's going on in Britain in terms of businesses that are doing nicely. Greenwich Leisure is one of um, mm. the most successful providers of leisure in London, and their model of business has inspired, you know, a third of all business in uh, leisure centres in Britain to be run as sporting trusts, which is the model that they're using. So they, their success has led to more people doing it, which has changed the way that leisure is provided in Britain. Hackney Community Transport, you know, with, is running the bus route, the public bus routes. It runs exceedingly effectively. It's investing that money in community transport. It's recently won the contract for the Channel Islands. You know, and so that sort of sense that actually there's lots of different social enterprises, all, all built with different legal models, succeeding in the, in, in the sector that they're trying to work in and offering both the consumers of those goods and services and the employees a, you know, a very different place to work. Yes, and it's a kind of wide ecology, isn't it? A different, yeah. Also, I guess, in the same way as social business itself with different you know, hybrid forms. I, I, I do think that young people are very interested in how you might work for something that isn't about making shareholders rich. It's actually about making the thing work better. Yes. I think in some ways that's not a new idea. That's a very old idea. That's what, you know... That's what those companies like Cadbury's and Clark's Shoes and Quaker Oats, that's what they all did. They all set up to do de a decent service. If you think people who worked for the train service were proud to deliver a good service. Yes, it's, it's all been de uh, de so, derailed. Down I mean, sort of it was derailed in the 70s when people publicly listed and how money became different mm. and, and the desire for money to make money has, has 
I would say about the way that cooperatives work, or in a way, the way that democracies work, is oh. you have to be responsible. You have to participate. You have to educate yourself enough to take a responsible position in whatever it is you're going to play. Otherwise, you get what you deserve. Right. Yes, absolutely. And so the democracy works if we all join in. Yes. You know, a cooperative works if we all join in responsibly. Yes. It, it doesn't if we don't. Yeah. No. And so I do think that people possibly have got a bit complacent. Yes, and well, the, the media as well. It's hard to. Yes, because I think the media yeah. has a role to play, and I don't think it's playing. I don't. I, you know, I think it's sad that in. I mean, so obviously, new tech. Uh, you know, the impact of digital communications mm. has put a big strain on uh, media. That's right. What kind of messages is it feeding? And um, well, also, does it stay with the story long enough yeah. for people to understand it? Yeah. Well, absolutely. And um, yeah. And, and, and what you see and what I've seen doing this work is that you lift the lid a little bit and look under, and, and the number of organisations that are doing amazing things around the world is just—it's astonishing. If you start to, you know, as you say, the co-ops you mentioned, but just social business generally is, is so inspiring. Um, it's, it's, and it's not a message that's always getting out there. So I guess I can't find. Final question, Sophia, I'm mindful yes. of the time. What inspires you and what keeps you going? I sort of end up reverting back to what I've, what I've already said. So, I, I mean, what inspires me is that we are making a real difference, that I can see the difference in terms of the farmers' lives, because I know real farmers whose lives have changed forever. So that when we launched the company in America, I went there on Valentine's Day in 2007 with a woman called Comfort Kamir, who was a 57-year-old cocoa farmer. I have to ask about the values of the company, the shared values, because this is something you're talking about, and clearly that's something that is a powerful force in, in, in your success. Yes, no, it is. What's lovely, I mean, I love things where when you look at them and they look nice and you look closer and they look even nicer, you know, uh, we, we, and, and that doesn't often happen. Lots of things when you look closer at it and you know more about it become disappointing. I hope that finds one of those things that you can look closer at and feel inspired. That's very inspiring. Thank you very much, Sophie. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.